Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Influence. What is influence? What is the power of influence? Is it the ability to persuade others to buy your product? Is it convincing someone to live your lifestyle? Is it gaining the trust of followers to advance your agenda? Or is it something more? Good morning, church. Good morning, Indianola First. It is great to be with you this morning. And uh, it's myself, Pastor Jared. I'm the executive pastor here at Indianola First. I wanted to say a special welcome for those of us at home, which is everybody. We're all at home enjoying this day. And uh, isn't it awesome that we're able to get together, even though we can't physically get together, isn't it great that we get to get together in our living rooms and enjoy this time? I don't know what you're doing or uh, what you got on or what kind of snacks you have right now. Maybe you got some pretzels. I, I don't know. I mean, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Um, I do want to encourage you, though, however, as uh, the message progresses this morning, just to make sure that you feel at home. You know, I might ask you to do something, and if you got someone there, I might ask you to say something to someone sitting there, just go ahead and feel free to say it, even though maybe it's a little weird. It kind of helps you make that feeling that you're here. Uh, say amen once in a while if there's something good that's being said that you agree with. And, uh, you know, if there's a response time, just, just make sure that you respond this morning. I mean, we're kind of living in a different different time and we're doing some different things. And we're trying to bring as much of Indianola first and the experience that you would get as a live experience to where you're at. So just keep that in mind this morning as, as we go about and we talk. So let's get right at it this morning. I uh, wanted to let you know that uh, we're going to be picking up and continuing with our Nehemiah series that we've been talking about for the last three weeks or so. Uh, Pastor Barry has done a dynamite job of taking us through this series on leadership based on the book of Nehemiah. Now, really, whether we know it or not, we're all leaders. We may not be community leaders, political leaders, or leaders of mega corporations, but every single one of us leads in some way. If you're any kind of a man, managerial position at work, if you're a manager, then you lead somebody. If you're a, a business owner, uh, you lead your company and, and possibly employees. If you are a, a, a parent <laughs> or you have been a parent, you lead your children. They may not always follow where you want them to go, but you lead them, right? Even if you don't qualify in any of those areas that I just mentioned, however, you're still a leader because you lead yourself. So this message, this series that we're going to be embarking on, it's really for everybody because leadership affects every single one of us. So what leadership lessons have we learned from Nehemiah so far? I just want to take a quick trek back and talk about what we've learned so far. So, so far we've learned that, number one, the first week we talked about the fact that a leader needs to pray. Prayer is where it all begins. Then we learn in week two that if a leader is praying, they're going to have a vision from God. So if you are in God's presence, he's going to be giving you instructions and things to do. So you're going to have a vision. So that was week two. Uh, week three taught us that a leader has a plan. Pastor Barry reminded us of Nehemiah's plan to divide the people into groups so they could rebuild the gates of the city. And then he told us about the prophetic meanings of the gates in Nehemiah. So if you remember in the series, Nehemiah is bringing people back to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the city. And that's kind of the context of this whole series. So, 
So this morning, as we step into the last message in the series, I think about Nehemiah. You know, I think about his story. And we're so far removed from it, sometimes it's hard to really remember and think about what was going on with him. But here's a guy who's been taken from his homeland as a prisoner of war and forced to work as a slave in the king's court. After 70 years, he's allowed to lead a fraction of the Jews who were taken into captivity back to his home on a long trip across land, only to find when they get there that not only were they exhausted from the long trip, but the city was in shambles. Their mandate from God was clear. He wanted them to rebuild the walls of the city. And the hard part was, was not only were they exhausted because of the trip. And when they got there, they realized that the task was going to be daunting, but these people had no homes. They were moving back to the land and they had been living in Babylon for the last 70 years and they had made homes and they had made, made community with where they were at. But now they're deciding to move back. I mean, think about it. These people were probably sleeping in tents. They were probably sleeping, some of them out underneath the stars. And yet they're putting in these long, grueling days, lifting up stones and rocks and, and these heavy, heavy, even these heavy pieces of equipment to try to get their walls rebuilt. That would have been an exhausting thing to do. I imagine Nehemiah in this case felt a bit like Rudy Rudiger staring down his dream to play for the Notre, for Notre Dame at 5'6", 165 pounds and little talent. He probably didn't feel much unlike the 1980 USA hockey team, a group of ragtag amateur students trying to pull off one of the biggest upsets in sports history against a professional, undefeated, four-time gold medal Russian team. And as we know, or at least most of us know, and if you don't, then I'm spoiling it for you. So if you want to watch the movie Miracle of Rudy, you might want to close your ears right here. But as we know, Rudy went on to play the last season, I'm sorry, the last match or the last uh, game of the 1975 season and had a game-ending sack. And in 1980, the U.S. hockey team went on to upset the Russians and win the gold medal in the Olympics. I mean, we love stories like these, don't we? It seems like Disney comes out with these stories all the time about the, the underdog athletes or the underdog athletic team and what they did to triumph. We love to hear about people that win despite the odds being so stacked highly against them. But have you ever asked yourself, why is that? Why do we like that? Why does that appeal to us so much? Maybe you don't, but I do. Maybe I'm weird like that. I wonder if it's because we relate to the people in these stories. You know, when we look at our lives and our dreams, maybe we all feel a little bit like we're the underdogs in life fighting an uphill battle. When we see an underdog win, I think it gives maybe the rest of us hope that we can win too because we feel like the odds are stacked against us. I want to let you know this morning that this message that I'm about to give is something that has been birthed in Pastor Barry's heart weeks before uh, the coronavirus was a concern for anyone. But I'm telling you this morning that Nehemiah's story is so relevant to what we're going through that the timing of this message is almost prophetic, and it's amazing. You see, Nehemiah and his team had begun work on the walls, but they were facing heavy opposition from the enemy. They were facing fear, uncertainty, confusion. And let me give you a spoiler. They won. They made it. They did it. They were the underdogs. They completed their God-given mission, and they thrived in the process. If there was a time we need to be encouraged about living in victory, I think it's right now. Wouldn't you agree, church? So let's take some lessons from chapter 4 on how to live in victory as we walk through trials, as we walk through hard times in life. This morning, I want to start in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. Now, Sanballat, just to let you know, is a guy who was a commander of the Syrian 
army, the army that was in control of that area at the time. And so he saw these Jews come and start rebuilding the wall, and he was not very happy about it. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something from these stones and this rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, the the stones would collapse even if a fox walked on the top of it. So there was an attack coming to Nehemiah and his people. And the attack took the form of intimidation, didn't it? They were intimidated, or at least there was an attempt to intimidate them by the Syrian army. So right here, what we see is a conversation between this commander of the Syrian army and his fellow soldiers and the people that were really around the area, too. They, uh, they started off by attacking their weaknesses. They said things like, these poor Jews, and, and they were poor, weren't they? Because, you know, they came from this area and they, they really didn't have anything and they weren't going to be able to work for a long time. And he called them feeble. And were they feeble? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They were, you know, women and children and men. It wasn't a, an army. It wasn't warriors. It was just regular people. So, you know, this army officer looks at his grand army and he sees these people and he calls them poor and he calls them feeble. So he wasn't necessarily lying, but what he was trying to do was attack their insecurities, the areas in your life that you think you're weak in, that's where the enemy is going to attack you too. See, it's a strategy of the enemy. When God called his great servant Moses, if you remember, Moses' first response wasn't, oh yeah, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be excited about it. It's going to be awesome. Let's go deliver those Jews. No, that wasn't, that wasn't Moses's. That wasn't his first response. His first response was to sit out and list for God all the areas that he was weak in. He told God, like, God, I'm slow of speech, and I'm slow of tongue, and there's a lot better people more qualified to do this than I am. He started listing out his insecurities. But it's so cool how God combats this idea of the enemy coming against us and bringing up our insecurities. Here's how he does it. He did it with a guy named Gideon in the Bible. The first time the angel of the Lord saw Gideon, he said, He said, God is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon then, of course, went on to tell God why he wasn't a mighty warrior. But God attacked. See, where Satan attacks those insecurities, God lifted him up in his insecurities. It was pretty amazing. And God does the same thing for us. In fact, the Bible says that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Your insecurities are God's opportunities to do something great. So even though some of those insecurities, some of those things might be true about you, when the enemy comes in, you don't need to stand on that because even though those may be your insecurities, God uses those insecurities, God uses those weaknesses to reach a world for him. Let God turn your insecurities into his opportunities. If your mind is filled with intimidating thoughts, that's just the enemy's chatter. It means nothing. It means nothing. So not only did the enemy attack their insecurities. They also attacked their vision. I don't know if you saw this in the verse, but um, they talked about the wall. They talked about how it was going to collapse. And they talked about the very vision that God had given Nehemiah. The enemy really went after him. And the enemy does the same thing for us. It goes after our vision. Have you ever heard thoughts in your head that sounded like this? You're not, you're never going to have a strong marriage. You're not going to go anywhere in this company. You're too old now. You might as well just give up pursuing that dream. Your family's never going to get saved. You're just going to go have to live with anxiety for the rest of your life because it's never going to get healed. You ever heard the enemy say things like that to you? 
That's the enemy directly attacking God's vision and God's word for who you are and what he's called you to be. He attacks your insecurities and he attacks the vision and the dreams that God has given you. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard that all the time. I probably hear it multiple times a day because the enemy likes to come in and he likes to attack those two areas. Because if the enemy can get you to doubt yourself, he'll be able to get you to doubt your God-given dreams. So what does Nehemiah do in response to this threat, this intimidation of their vision and their insecurities? What what does Nehemiah do? What do his people do? Well, let's read it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. He says, Then I prayed, Hear us, O God, for we're being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their heads, and may they themselves be captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. So how did Nehemiah respond? He prayed. Nehemiah gave us an inspired example of what to do when we're attacked by the voice of the enemy. He he prayed. That was his first thing. And I know sometimes we sound like a broken record because we say pray, 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 pray. In fact, the entire first message of the series was all about Nehemiah being a man of prayer. Here he shows it, but maybe you're saying, man, we, we talk about prayer so much, but prayer is the lifeline for a Christian. There's nothing more important than communicating with God. It's what keeps us close to the source. Why is prayer so effective against these attacks that I was talking about? Well, I'll tell you why. Because our output is a direct, uh, our output rather is a direct result of our input. There's a research book, or I'm sorry, rather, in their research for their book, Words Can Change Your Brain, doctors Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldman found that, and I quote, angry words send alarm messages through the brain, and, they're partially shut, and they partially shut down the logic and reasoning centers located in the frontal lobes. Okay, so if you didn't catch that, they said angry words, okay, partially shut down your logic centers in your brain, and they cause chaos and confusion in your mind. They also said this, they went on to say that negative words increase activity in the amygdala, the fear center of the brain. That's just negative words that do that. So my question, church, is this. What are you choosing to listen to right now? See, Nehemiah had a lot of words coming at him. And isn't it so interesting that science bears out what God says? Because here, the, here these guys doing research found out that negative words impact our mind in a way that causes fear and in a way that causes our logic centers to be shut down. And here we're seeing Nehemiah in the same exact situation. So he decides to pray. He decides that he wants to pray. But my question for you is this, and why, and why does he want to pray? Because he's, he's really conscious of the voice that he's going to listen to, okay? So my, my question for you this morning is, what voice are you listening to? What are you listening to right now during this coronavirus crisis? Are your eyes glued to the TV for the latest in what's happening? Are you on your news app or on Facebook to see the latest bad news? You know, I know I was thinking about this just the other day as I was in the kitchen We've been having the news on a lot lately, and, uh, you know, I, I've heard so much about it, and it seems like even though I'm not a person who lives in fear, even though I, I'm standing on the promises of God, you just, you hear this stuff so much, it starts to get into your spirit, and I, I remember the other day, I just, I was in the kitchen and getting some stuff ready for dinner, and I just shut the TV off, and I turned on praise music, because I was, it was that conscious idea of, I'm just going to shut this stuff out and listen to something that's going to lift me up. My son Malachi, uh, a few months back, he was watching the news, and he's not one to watch the news, in fact, he never does. And he watched news with me. It was like world news for like 15 minutes or so. And he's like, 
this is so depressing, Dad. How can you watch this? And I'm like, this kid's 15 years old, and he gets it. You know, he never watches the news, and he understands that these voices uh, that you're hearing out there, um, even though these things are true, even though we don't want to deny the reality of what's happening, I challenge you. I challenge you. What voice are you listening to more? Are you listening to what's coming out of the TV? Are you listening and watching and and meditating on what's on your news app? Or are you meditating on the word of God? Are you meditating on the good things that are coming from the Lord? Philippians 4, 6 or 7 says this. Don't worry about anything. Did you hear that? Don't worry about anything. Pray instead about everything. So here it is right here. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So here we have this society right now where everybody's fearful, everybody's afraid. And the Bible has the answer in Philippians. It's right there. Shut off the voices. Don't be anxious. Instead, pray about everything. Because when you're listening to God's voice, you're going to get his perspective, and you're going to, you're going to take that into your kind of output. And you're going to be spreading those kinds of things with the people that you talk to and the way that you act. It's going to change the way that you behave. But if you're listening to all the junk and all the bad all of the time, that's going to affect you, and that's going to affect how you live. So what voice are you listening to is my question. How about praying for a little bit, shutting off the TV, shutting off the noise, and just getting together with God and getting his perspective on the situation. That was the first attack. That was intimidation. Second attack, Nehemiah 4.8. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. So we have this pattern in the story where the enemies of Nehemiah try to attack and then Nehemiah has a response to their attack that just confuses them and it, and it frustrates them because it never comes to anything. So we had the first attack, uh, which was they came against them and they tried to intimidate them. And Nehemiah's response was to pray and to get the people to pray. And it worked brilliantly. So these people come with a second attack. And how many of you know that when the enemy tries to attack you in one area and he's not successful, he goes and he tries to attack you in another area? Amen? Amen. That's exactly what was happening. So the enemy tried a new strategy in, in Nehemiah 4.8. It said they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. So the first attack, attack was intimidation. The second attack was confusion. And how many of you know the enemy likes nothing better than to confuse us? Once Nehemiah's enemy learned that they couldn't intimidate him, they tried to throw them into confusion. This strategy is completely at work in our world today, isn't it? There's confusion and chaos everywhere right now. The stock market, schools, workplaces, and the list just goes on and on and on. There's just confusion all the time, and that's why a lot of the public servants are trying to create um, order, and they're trying to, in the midst of this, trying to create some order and get information out. But for us, spiritually, there's, there's confusion that comes against us all the time from the enemy. Chaos and confusion are powerful weapons of the enemy. And we see him use this strategy way back at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, don't we? He questioned Eve, if you remember the story. In the, in the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam were there, and the, the serpent, the devil, was there with them. And do you remember what he said to Eve? He asked her this question, did God really say that's what he asked her. He said, did God really say? He just, he plants that little seed of confusion because God had came to them and said to them, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden that you want to except this tree right here. You can't eat from this one tree because uh, if you do, it'll, it'll cause death. 
And so Satan comes along and says, did God really say? He creates that little piece of confusion in their minds. And then all of a sudden, something they were so sure about that they could eat from any tree except for this one because this one would cause you to die. All of a sudden, that surety that they had in God's word, all of a sudden, it just went out the window and they started questioning themselves. Like, yeah, did, did God really say? Is that really true? Is that really what's going to happen? It's, it's a tactic of the enemy. Confusion is a tactic of the enemy. And so he puts those little seeds of doubt in our minds. And you know what happens when he puts those seeds of doubt in our minds? They distract us from God's mission. And that's exactly what Nehemiah's enemies were trying to do. They were trying to get him into a place where they would be uh, so distracted because of the confusion that was reigning in their camp that they wouldn't be able to rebuild the walls. And Satan does the same thing to us. He confuses us. He puts these little seeds of confusion in our hearts and in our minds so that we can get distracted from God's purposes and who God has called us to reach while we're on this world. There's those little, little voices and those little seeds. And, and sometimes that, you know, I get that all the time still where that, that little voice comes to me in, in my thoughts and it says things like, did God really say that you'll be healed? Why haven't your prayers been answered yet? Do you think God is really listening to your prayers? Is God even real at all? Was that really God's promise or was that just your wishful thinking? I don't know if you've ever dealt with that. I deal with that still all the time. Satan questioning God's word to me, causing confusion to try to come in. So what was Nehemiah's response to the enemy's strategy of confusion? His response, we find it in chapter 4, verse 9. But we prayed to our God, so there he is, he prays again, but then he adds something else. Listen to this. And guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. And then the verses go on, and he talks about the guard that he put in place. So what was his response? To pray and then to set a guard on the wall or to set a guard um, where they were working. So what can we learn from that? When the enemy comes in and tries to bring confusion in your mind, you set a guard. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we need to guard our heart because it's the wellspring of life. So here it is. It's biblical. Set a guard. It's biblical. Set a guard. What does that mean? What does that look like practically speaking? Well, we find the answer in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We set a guard on our minds by evaluating every single thought that comes in here. You notice that even in the first part of the verse, it says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, right? That's directly speaking to those bits of confusion that the enemy tries to put in our mind. Those are the arguments and the pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God because we have a knowledge of God. We know who he is. For a lot of us, we know what he's done. We know what he said through his word. And there's these thoughts that come in, like I've been talking about, did God really say? Is God really real? Those are thoughts and arguments that set themselves up against the things that we already know to be true about God. But the enemy comes in and he tries to shake our foundations and shake us through those things. So that's why we need to set a guard. So what does that look like again? Simply put, we need to think about what we think about. We put these thoughts to the test, okay? So when a thought enters our mind, we think about that thought. We don't just blase, let, it, let, let a thought pop in our mind and just think about it. We think about, hey, what in the world am I thinking about? What am I allowing into my head? And then we put that thought to the test, okay? We put that thought to the test, and, and if that thought doesn't line up with the Word of God and it's not true, then we kick that thought to the curb. You know, in my mind, I get this picture from, like, Lord of the Rings for, you know, maybe some of you that remember Lord of the Rings, and, um, 
the wizard Gandalf when he's on the stone bridge and he's fighting this big shadow monster. And he's got his staff in his hand and he says, you shall not pass. And he hits it on the ground and uh, busts the bridge. You know, that's, I don't know about you. I have weird thoughts that go through my mind, but that's what I think of, you know? When the enemy is trying to confuse me and throw a thought into my mind like that, I picture Gandalf in my mind. I set him in my mind as a guard. And then, uh, you know, just, you shall not pass. I mean, if it takes that for you, to not let those thoughts be in your mind, then by all means do it, you know? By all means. It doesn't matter how weird you look or how different it is. If you're shaving in the morning, guys, and you have a thought that crosses your mind, you need to just be like, you shall not put, then go ahead and do it. That's fine with me. If you're driving, it might be a little bit awkward, but you can do it. You know, if you look at the person next to you, you shall not put. Wait, you don't want to do that. You know, let's say you have a kidney stone, maybe. I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, your kidney stone, you speak to it. You shall, wait. You don't want to do that, I guess. You want that to pass, so make sure that that does. But what I'm saying is, make sure you set a guard in your mind because it's important to think about what you think about. Amen? Put a guard in your mind. Make those thoughts pass your test. If they're going to stay in your mind, if they're going to be thought about, or if they're going to get kicked to the curve. Really, there's only three uh, thoughts that enter your mind. Thoughts from you, thoughts from the Lord, and thoughts from the enemy. And you get the choice of what you're going to think about and what you're going to allow to rule your mind. So make sure that whatever you're keeping in your mind is worth thinking about. All right. So the first attack was an attack intimidation. The second attack that we dealt with um, was an attack that we needed to set a guard up. It was an attack of confusion. I want to talk to you about the last guard, or I'm sorry, the last attack rather that came. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. It says this, Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, Before they knew what's happening, we'll swoop down and we'll kill them and we'll end their work. The Jews who lived near them came and told us again and again, They'll come from all directions and attack us. So you have to get a little bit of a picture as to what was going on here. So there were some Jews that weren't exiled, and they, they still continued to live in that area, uh, even though the Babylonians took off the majority of the Jews when they came and attacked 70 years prior. There were still some Jews in the area. So, um, you know, Jews being, being of the same people and the same kind, they were friends to the Jews who had came back from Babylon and were rebuilding, um, rebuilding the walls. And so... Sandblatt and his forces and their enemies were saying these things um, about coming and they were, they were planning on killing him and they were spreading the word around, okay? They were doing it on purpose. They were spreading the word around so that the people in the area would be overcome with fear. And then, so what happened was you had these people who were Jews and they kept coming to, they were Jews who had lived there formerly and they kept coming to the Jews who were rebuilding the walls and they kept telling them over and over and over again what these guys had meant to do. Now, Catch this. They were telling them that not to intimidate them. The Jews, were, the Jews that lived there were not telling the Jews from Babylon to intimidate them. They were telling them that because they were trying to help them. They were trying to let them know, hey, this is what this guy has planned. This is what he's going to do. But inadvertently, it was the enemy's strategy to cause fear in their camp so they would be distracted from the work that God had called them to do. So when Nehemiah's enemy couldn't intimidate and he couldn't distract then he came after him with the last strategy, and it's the last strategy I want to talk to, to us about this morning, is that he will use people when he can't use us. You see, when you have full control over what you're listening to and you're watching, when your mind is guarded, and the enemy know that, knows that he can't defeat you with a direct assault, which I, I hope that's the majority of us today. If he can't defeat us with a direct assault and we have our minds locked down and we're watching what we're watching, we're thinking about what we're thinking about, then he comes at us sideways, 
He comes at us sideways through other people. He doesn't just always use obvious non-believers to do this either. He sometimes and oftentimes will use people that are even close to us, even, even Christians whose minds aren't locked down and have really good intentions. The enemy will use those people. Sometimes people that are Christians and are great people will make offhanded comments that the enemy will use. And they don't even really even know that they're being used by the enemy. I want to give you, there's an example of this that came to mind as I was preparing. And I was, I had a friend who, uh, when I was preparing to go into youth ministry, I was going to a ministry school. And uh, there was a friend there who was talking to me. And, and when I shared what I was going to do, and I said, I'm going to be a youth pastor, uh, this friend said, oh, oh, you, you can't be a youth pastor. You're not married. This was a great person. This is a person who had encouraged me in my walk with God. This is a person who uh, had done really great things in my life and was a really true friend and loved Jesus with all their heart. But that statement that they made cut me to the core. It shook me. I remember, I remember taking time and thinking, like, you know, it caused a little bit of doubt in my life. Like, it, did God really call me to be a youth pastor? Can I, can I really do that if I'm not married? Is that really something that I can do? Or do I need to rethink this whole thing? You know, it's just it's crazy that God will use people to come at you when you least expect it. And don't think it's just us that had to deal with this. Um, Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus rather, had to do this once with Peter because there was this one time, Peter, if you don't know Peter, by the way, Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples and friends while Jesus was on this earth. And Jesus was telling the disciples one day about how he was going to die and uh, how he would have to suffer greatly. And Peter said, no, 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 Jesus, you don't need to do that. No, Jesus, that's not the way. And um, after Jesus, Peter had said that, uh, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he looked right at Peter, Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was recognizing that the enemy was trying to use those things against him. He was trying to use Peter to speak those doubts into Jesus' mind because, as we know, one of the temptations that Jesus had to face was whether he would go to the cross in the book of John, uh, Jesus is in the garden, and he says, Father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken from me, please take it from me. God, I, I don't want to go to the cross, but nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. So that was a very real struggle that Jesus had on this earth. And Peter was speaking that, didn't even know that he was speaking uh, what, what the enemy was trying to get through to Jesus, but he was. And so I guess I use that as an example this morning of the fact that God is going to use people sometimes to come at you. So don't be, don't be discouraged, don't be distracted, and, and just know that it can be some, they can be really good people. So what was Nehemiah's response when these people kept coming to him and coming to him, and they said, we're going to attack, and they're going to attack? How did Nehemiah respond? Well, he responded beautifully, and we see part of it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 18. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Nehemiah's response to this threat was to have his workers carry their swords with them at all times. And what they did on the physical is exactly what we need to do in the spiritual. We need to be ingrained with our swords, and our swords being the Word of God. Jesus set the tone for us in this when he was feeling outside pressure from Satan. He used the Bible. Let me back up a second. Ephesians 6, 17, it says, I just wanted to let you know that when we say sword and, sword and, and Bible, they're synonymous because in Ephesians 6, 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have a precedence in the Bible where um, it correlates the idea of a sword with the Bible. It's, it's our offensive weapon in the armor, in the, the spiritual armor that God gave us. 
So we need to ingrain ourselves with the word of God. So when Jesus was attacked by Satan, confronted, and Jesus was getting outside pressure because at that time, Satan had taken physical form, and Jesus had come off a 40-day fast, and he was weak in his body, and Satan knew this. And so they had this conversation, and Satan three times had tempted him. Three times Satan attacked him, and three times Jesus refuted him by using scripture, using the word of God. It was so ingrained in who Jesus was that that's what he did. And if Jesus used that strategy against the enemy when someone from the outside came in, how many more do you think we need to be using that strategy in our own lives when we get pressure from the outside, even from good people, even from people that mean well? I think we need to. You know, I was... uh, I have this turtle at our house. It's really our, our only pet. Um, my kids really want a dog, but um, that's more work than I want to put in. So we got a turtle, which is a great pet, by the way. It's very minimum maintenance. But one of the things that I get the privilege of doing is cleaning out his cage, his tank. And he's got a filter in his tank. And that filter does an, a, a tremendous job. And, uh, but about once a month or so, it needs to be clean. And so I, I get, again, I get the privilege of taking out the filter and I have to take it to the bathtub and I take out, there's like a little piece that's kind of like a spongy styrofoam thing. And I have to take that out and I have to wring it out. And I'll tell you what, it, the most disgusting stuff comes out of that. It's gross. It is nasty. It's not something I like doing because I have to deal with that thing. And uh, I leave it under the water for a long time and I continue to squeeze it until the water runs clear. And it takes probably a good, you know, four or five minutes for that thing to run clear because it filters out so much junk. And it always amazes me when I'm cleaning that turtle tank and when I'm cleaning that filter especially, it always amazes me how much gunk that it catches. And I always, I remember, I always think, I can't believe the tank is so clean and looks so good considering that all the water has to filter through this filter system and and all the gunk is in here. It just goes to show you that the filter is doing what it's supposed to do. It's taking in good water. And it's taking in gunky water. It's taking the junk out of the gunk and it's letting through the clean water. And let me, let me tell you that we as a people, when we have conversations with others, we need to filter it through the word of God. We need to do the same thing spiritually that that filter does in the tank physically. We need to take the gunk out and we have to run everything. We have to run that conversation that we have with other people through the word of God. And when you get the word of God ingrained in you enough, you just kind of do this automatically. Um, and for those of you that are maybe new to, new to the, the Lord and you're new to scripture, don't worry about it. As you study the Bible, this will come with time. But you get to a place where you're so, uh, you, the Bible is so ingrained in you and it's a part of who you are and you memorized it that you run that stuff through the filter of your mind and you're able to re- automatically identify, okay, that's not from God. That's not from God. That's not from God. That, that's okay. Let's let that through. Let's let that through. But it's a way to let those conversations be what they are. And then you don't have to get upset at those people. You don't have to get mad at those people. Because like I said, most of those time, those people don't really understand what they're doing. They're not out to try to derail you most of the time. Most of the time, their intentions are really good. And so you don't have to get upset at them. You just know that, you know what, sometimes the devil, the enemy is trying to come at me sideways, and he'll try to use people to do it. And that's okay, because um, I've got a filter that is the word of God, and I'm going to run every conversation through that filter, and the enemy is not going to be able to attack me from that direction either. So... In closing this morning, I want to let you know that uh, I just want to give you some encouragement this morning. You know, I know the enemy is hard, hard at work in this world right now. He's brought the sickness. There's no doubt about that. We know that uh, the sickness wasn't brought by the Lord. We know that the sickness was brought by him. 
But that's really not the worst part of this entire outbreak. The worst part is what accompanies the sickness that's, that's the most deadly. It's the fear, the confusion, the chaos. These are the weapons that the enemy is deploying right now. And so many of those weapons are here. So many of these attacks that come with this virus, I mean, the virus is real. It's a real threat. It's a physical threat, but there's, there's a threat that's even worse, and it's going to come through our minds. It's the psychological warfare that and the spiritual warfare that Satan's trying to unleash on our minds and on our hearts and on our spirits. And so this morning, I want to give you a word, and I want to encourage you to say, don't be deceived, church. God is calling us to be victorious through this crisis. Don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to the chaos. Don't give in to the confusion. God is calling us to be victorious. You see, we're going to walk through this thing one way or the other. Just walking through it doesn't make us victorious. It's the way in which we walk through this crisis that's going to determine whether we as people are victorious or whether we're not. So pray, set a guard on your mind, and filter your conversations through the Word of God this week. That's what you want to do. Pray. I'm going to say it again. Pray, set a guard on your mind, and filter your conversations that you have with people through the Word of God and you're going to be victorious through this thing. I'm praying that God uses this opportunity because as we look at this thing as Christians, this can be a real opportunity for us as the church to rise up and be the people that God has called us to be. We don't have to walk through this with our heads down. We don't have to walk through this thing sad and depressed and scared and full of anxiety. We can walk through this thing with our heads held high and we can look for the opportunities that God is going to use amidst this chaos. I see this thing happening, and I look at it, and I think to myself, this is a great opportunity for an American society that is way too fast-paced to slow down. And I'm praying that God uses this time where we slow down a little bit. I'm praying he uses that to bring families back together, and I'm praying that he uses that for people to take time to get close to him, because I don't know how many times I've heard the number one reason that people aren't Getting alone with God, getting in their prayer closets and reading the word is because they don't have time. Well, now most of us, a lot of us, have a lot of extra time on our hands. So use that time wisely. And let's pray that God does something great. Let's pray that this sparks a revival for our nation. Because this could be the very thing that's a catalyst for God to do something great that he's been waiting to do for a long time. But hasn't been able to do because of the way and the, the pace of our lives. So church, would you pray with me that today? And uh, as we close in prayer here today, I want you to just bow your head right now. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Have you given in to the work of the enemy in your life? And maybe not even coronavirus related, but has the enemy been working on your insecurities and you're giving in? Has the enemy been causing confusion in your life, and you've given in to that confusion? Has the enemy been bringing people into your life that are speaking things that have you causing, questioning what God's called you to do? Man, if that's you this morning, with everybody's head bowed, all across your living rooms, all across wherever you're watching, whether it's on your phone or TV, I want you, everybody, to close your eyes. If you're sitting with your family, everybody close your eyes. And I want you to be honest right now. If that's you this morning, I want you to just raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand. Even though it's awkward and a little weird that I'm asking you to do it in your home, just raise your hand. Amen. And God sees those. You can put your hand down. I want to pray for each and every one of you. And here's what I want to do after we pray. I'm going to give you a little more instruction, but let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, that even though we can't be here in person today, 
Lord, that you have our backs. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you are causing something great to come from this chaos that we're experiencing in our nation and in our world. Lord, I pray for an answer. I pray for a cure. I pray for you to, to shine in this time. But God, I, most of all, I pray for your people to stand up and to be what you've called them to be. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this time, we'll do it victoriously. We won't cower in fear, but God will be raised in triumph, raised in victory, and we'll be like Nehemiah, and we'll be overcomers, because that's who you've called us and created us to be. We thank you, and we love you. I pray, God, for those that raise their hands this morning, God, that you will give them the strategies, Lord, and help them to implement those strategies, even that we preached and talked about this morning, into their lives so that they can see you do something incredible. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, if you're there, there's one last thing I want you to do, and that is if you're with a group of people, because we, we don't have life groups at the moment, but if you're with a group of people, maybe your family, I want you to kind of use this as a, as a discussion, just one question, and that is what area of your life, if any, are you giving in to the enemy in, and what can you do to, uh, to stop it? Talk about that a little bit. Take, take five or six minutes, 10 minutes, and discuss that as a family and pray for each other today. And uh, we're excited to see you soon. We're gonna be back again on Wednesday uh, with prayer and with youth and with kids. So please join us then and stay tuned as we update you uh, as things continue to change and as things continue to roll forward. But go out there and be the church this week in Jesus' name and have an amazing, an amazing week. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.